We are in uh, the Psalms this morning. Psalm chapter 2, if you would make your way there. Uh, as we mentioned last week, uh, having just completed 1 Timothy, we're going to take a, a little break uh, before heading off into the next of the pastoral epistles that we're going to look at. And we're going to, during the month of December, with the exception of Christmas Eve, we're going to look at uh, some of these psalms together, and so that's exciting for us, I think. I'll remind you, while you're turning to Psalm 2, right in the middle of your Bibles, while you're turning there, uh, Psalm, the psalms were the, the hymn book of the nation of Israel, that they were written over a period of about 900 years. There's seven different authors that are named. The most common is David, uh, but about 50 of the psalms are not named at all. They're anonymous, and perhaps they were those seven. Maybe they were additional individuals here. Uh, written over all of that time, they, they served the test of time, or they stood the test of time, and they had just established themselves as being able to communicate the heart of the people of God. Whatever circumstance they might find themselves in, the difficult times, the good times, the angry times, the sad times, whatever it might be, to be able to put to words what you're trying to formulate inside of your heart, there's a psalm for that. And so somebody has said, these are for every sigh and every high of life. And indeed, that is the case. A central theme of the Psalms, as, as you're working your way through them, you're not going to see it in every verse, but you'll see it in each of the Psalms or in the next one if it's not this one. A central theme is this idea is that those circumstances might not seem as if this is the case. God is reigning on the throne. And righteousness, and, or God is the victor, and righteousness will win out in the end. That's sort of this central theme that just runs through it, and that's helpful because it gives rest in any circumstance we find ourselves in. And so if life is incredibly difficult, we know, Lord, it's falling apart here, but you are on your throne. If life is incredibly great here, Lord, everything is great here, but you're still on your throne, and I look to you and not to this. Whatever circumstance that you find yourself in, and this Psalm 2 is going to serve as an, an excellent example of that theme or of that reality, is that God is on his throne. Psalm 2 is what is referred to as a messianic psalm. There's about 20, closer to about 15, messianic psalms. Some of them, the entire chapter fits that category. Others of them, it's a portion of the chapter. And in other cases, it's one verse, kind of a random verse and a messianic psalm is a psalm in which it points to the person or the work of God's Messiah. Right? And so somewhere in that, the entirety of the psalm, a portion of the psalm, a verse of the psalm, is going to point to the person and the work of the Messiah, God's anointed one. Now some of you may not be familiar with the term Messiah, and so I want to make sure we all understand kind of what terminology we are using here. The word Messiah is an English word that comes from the Hebrew word, and that word is messiah, messiah, uh, in that way. And so it's just a transliteration, essentially, of it put into English, and it means anointed. And when it's referring to God's messiah, it's the anointed one. So the word means anointed, and in the Hebrew, from the Hebrew is where we get that English word, messiah. Now, in the New Testament which is primarily written in Greek, the word for anointed is the word Christos, which is where we get the word Christ. And so the word Messiah and the word Christ mean exactly the same thing. And when it's referring to the specific person, 
It's the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, the anointed one. All right, so many of us here, we're probably familiar with the term Christ, Jesus Christ. We almost think it's his last name. It's his title. And so if you were coming out of more of a Hebrew background, you'd be perhaps a little more familiar with the word Messiah. We're talking about the same thing. And so Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. And thus, somewhere in it, either the entirety of it or a portion of it, is going to communicate some important information about the person and the work of God's anointed one, of God's Messiah. Now, in our passage, it doesn't tell us who the author is. Some of the passages do. This is one of those that are, at least as far as the Psalms are concerned, anonymous. However, it's quoted in the New Testament. And God, by his Holy Spirit, inspired the person quoting it to tell us who wrote it. And so in the book of Acts, chapter 4, this is what we read. It says, now when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, these are Christians, they're praying. And they lifted their voices to God and they said, sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage? And why do the people's plot in vain? Why are the kings of the earth setting themselves and the rulers gathering themselves together against the Lord and against his anointed? And so whereas it's not mentioned in the Psalms, the Holy Spirit inspired those people to speak there in the book of Acts. And so we know that David is the author of this particular psalm. And being Psalm 2, this here now is really the first known psalm of David. David will be, go on to be called the sweet psalmist of Israel. He wrote about 75 of the 150 psalms that we are aware of. And here is the first one we have recorded, at least numerically. And so I'll read through it. Read with, follow along with me. I'm going to read the, the 12 verses of this psalm. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth, they set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree of the Lord, the Lord said to me, excuse me, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, and blessed are all who take refuge in him. Remember that central theme, God is victor. And clearly, that's what this passage teaches. In the end, despite all of the raging and the plotting and the scheming, God is victor. Now, I, I told you a moment ago that David is the author of this psalm. But as you read through it and you kind of pay attention as you read through it, what you'll notice is there are, there are either three or four different speakers that are quoted in this particular psalm. And I'll explain what I mean by that. But the first of those speakers is David. And his words are recorded in verses 1 through 5. He's the one who talks about the nations raging and how they're plotting in vain and what they say and so on. That's David in verses 1 through 5. The second speaker is in verse 6, and that's God the Father. 
And you'll see there, in response to the plotting and, and of the nations, it says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's God the Father speaking. And then as we go through verses 7 to 9, you can look down, you can see, the son raises his voice. He speaks. He talks there, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and so on and so forth. He goes, for, uh, goes on from there. Now the last speaker is in the final three verses, and that's verses 10 to 12. And scholars are a little bit divided here. Is it David speaking again? He opened up the conversation, he quoted what other people were saying, and then he closes the conversation. That certainly may be the case. But others have suggested that it's the Holy Spirit that is speaking. So God the Father spoke in verse 6, God the Son in verses 7 to 9, and now God the Holy Spirit in verses 10 through 12. We'll talk about that a little more. I think you can draw your own conclusions. I don't know if it really matters one way or the other. Either way, the words are inspired by God, and so we'll take them as such. But we have Psalm 2, where there's a variety of people that are speaking, and David prophetically, now David was a king, certainly, David was a worshiper of God, but here God reveals prophetically, and in that sense, he's a prophet of God too, he reveals prophetically to David future events. David's given insight into these future events. Somebody has called this the drama of the ages. And the reason why they've called it that is because in this, we have a decisive declaration concerning the outcome of events and forces that are in the world today. In a sense, we have insight into how it all, it's all going to end. And it's spoken very, very clear to, clearly to us. It begins with David wondering. He, uses, he raises the question, why? He, it says, now why do the nations rage and why do the peoples plot in veins? He wonders this aloud. Why are they raging? Why are they plotting? He goes on in verse 2. He says, well, it's because the kings of the earth have set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's why they're raging. That's why they're plotting. They're plotting against the Lord and his anointed. Now that word anointed, that's that word Messiah. And so we're referring to the Christ. They rage against God the Father. They rage against God the Son. Verse 3, they plot against those two. They come up with this plan. Look at verse 3. This is what they want to do. This is what they're plotting about. They say, let us burst their bonds apart. And let us cast away their cords from us. Now, to place this psalm in its proper setting, when is this happening? What is David seeing prophetically? When are the nations raging? And the word for raging there means noisily assembling. They're, they're gathering and they're raising their voices and they're ready to go to war. When, when were they plotting against God and against his anointed? Well, to put it in its proper perspective, that happens all the time. Even you and I, periods in our lives where we rage against God, and I don't like this God, I'm going to do what I want, I don't care what you have to say. So in that sense, there's an immediate fulfillment that's happening all the time, and it has happened all the time. But there is an ultimate fulfillment. This event is looking forward prophetically to the end of what you've probably heard of, the Great Tribulation. And it's pointing to the very end of the Great Tribulation period of time, where we are told that the kings of the earth and the ruler, kings and the rulers of the earth will literally take counsel together and go to war against God, against the Lord and his anointed. And so the ultimate fulfillment of this takes place at the conclusion of the Great Tribulation, and that's the, what is called the Battle of Armageddon. 
Now, Armageddon is a term that's used a lot. I mean, it's in the movies, you know. According to Bruce Willis, Armageddon is a, a meteor that's coming to, and so we're going to send some oil drillers up into the sky, and they're going to defeat Armageddon, and you know, we'll be, people use the term to describe all sorts of events that are occurring. There are people that are wondering if the events that are going on in Israel right now is this Armageddon? Are we moving toward Armageddon? Well, we may be moving toward it, but this isn't it. Because the scripture is pretty clear what it's going to look like and when it's going to occur. Now, one thing I never want to do is I never want to just say things to you. I'm never going to say, this is what this means, and you have to take it. What, I'm going to, what I want to do is I want to take us through the scripture and show you that Tim LaHaye and the Left Behind people didn't make up this story or something like that. Or... Uh, you know, some popular movie that is out there. This comes from the scripture. I'll draw your attention. And I will also say this. Not everybody comes to the same conclusions that I have come to. And so I'll take you through the scripture. You look at them. You see if it makes sense to you. We know from the scripture the most noblest of believers are those that go to the word and they check and see if it is so. We, they're called in Acts 17, the Bereans. And Paul commended them for being open to receive from him but at the same time, checking the scriptures to see if these things are so. And so I want to take you through a little bit here. The first place I want to draw your attention to is Daniel chapter 9. And so if you want to flip over there, we'll throw them up on the screen, but it's nice to go there as well. Daniel 9 is a few books ahead from where we are in the Psalms. And particularly, I want to draw your attention to chapter 9 of that book. Here, you're going to see a reference to what has been called Daniel's 70th week. And the reason why it's called this is because of verse 24. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, it reads this way. Now, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. So 70 weeks are decreed for all of those things that are mentioned in there to, to be able to take place and to occur. Now, in particular, notice in verse 24 who it relates to. It refers to your people, speaking of Daniel, your people and your holy city. Well, Daniel's people were the Jewish people. Daniel's holy city was the city of Jerusalem. And so this prophecy, it begins by telling us that there is a period of time, 70 weeks, that have been decreed regarding the Jewish people. Very important that we understand. To the Jews, the word week, it could refer to a seven-day period of time, but it's a term that was also synonymously used with a seven-year period of time. Much like we use the word decade to define 10 years, they would use the word week to define seven years. And so we are referring to a period of 70 weeks or 70 seven-year periods of time. That's equivalent, do the math, 490 years. I hope that's correct. I, I really did do the math just to make sure on my phone. Uh, 490 years. So here, Daniel, and remember when Daniel wrote his book, he was in the midst of captivity. This, it was, let's just pick a year close to it. It was the year 550 or so. Dan, the children of Israel, particularly the children of the southern kingdom of Judah, had been brought out of their land, taken into captivity, and brought to the land of Babylon. 
And it's from Babylon that Daniel writes his book, that we have the prophecy of Daniel found in our Old Testaments. And there, during that time, God comes, speaks to Daniel, and reveals to him his plan for the Jewish people. And he says to him, there are 490 additional years decreed for the Jewish people, where these things are going to happen. Look at verse 24. It, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and so on and so forth. Now, the first 69 weeks of those 70 weeks are described for us in the next verse. Look at verse 25, and I'm going to quote from the New King James Version here because I think the wording is just a little bit more clearer and it will serve our purpose. In verse 25, it says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince... There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. All right, so it's kind of poetic. You do the math. How many weeks? Seven and 62? 69 weeks. Very good. It says, the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. Seven and 62. 69 weeks. And again, a week, seven years. You do the math. Now we're talking about 483 years. All right, 483 years from when? From the moment Daniel receives this prophecy? 483 years sometime in the, from when? When are we talking about? Well, the date of it is the going forth of the command. As we see in the passage, look at verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be 483 years, 69 years weeks. Well, that command is recorded for us in our Bibles as well. It didn't happen right there with Daniel. It happened later on in the history of the Jewish people, but that's what will start this 483-year time clock. That particular event, turn with me, and you have to turn there, folks. This is too good not to look at. Nehemiah, that's to your left, just before the Psalms, a little bit before the Psalms. In particular, we're going to turn our attention to Nehemiah chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some available right in front of you or to the left or right of you. Ask your neighbor if you can use it. If you really feel like it, just take your neighbors from their lap. <laughs> They'll understand. Daniel chapter 2, excuse me, Nehemiah chapter 2, it begins this way. It says, now in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. This is Nehemiah speaking. And he served in the role as, uh, I think, I forget the term, the wine, the cupbearer. That's it. I want to say wine bibber, but that's not right, is it? No, that's wrong. We shouldn't say that. Uh, he was a cupbearer. Now you say, oh, that's kind of a lowly. It, it was actually a high level job all right, um, to be in that place, in that particular role. So he was a cupbearer. And it says, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, and that refers to Jerusalem, when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, well, what are you requesting? 
And so I prayed to the God of heaven. Just He said a little quiet prayer to God. God, give me the words to speak. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Again, Jerusalem. And the king said to me, with the queen sitting beside him, well, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? And when it's not, when I told this, he said, it should take me a few months or whatever. And so it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. That's the command. And so it pleased the king to send me when I had given him the, the time. That's the command of Daniel's prophecy. And so a big clock somewhere in the heavens started. And it was going to count down 483 years. Now we know the date of that historically because we're told in the opening verse that it was in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. And just grab your Britannica, Encyclopedia Britannica or something, and you can find the year that is. And we could trace it all the way back and we could, it brings us to 445 B.C., we add 483 years to that. Now, don't forget to factor in the Jews used a different calendar with a different number of days. For instance, we use 365. They use 360. So you got to do a little bit of math and subtracting and get a notepad and all that kind of stuff. But even just on the surface, 445, add 483, it brings you right up around 30 AD, doesn't it? And there are people that have done it and got it much more specific. It brings you to the day that Jesus Christ came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey that day that we commonly call Palm Sunday. You can read about Palm Sunday in Matthew chapter 21, in John chapter 19, and in Luke chapter 12. Now that's a passage a lot of times we're familiar with because it comes up almost every Easter season. But I will remind you that there was a crowd of people that lined the streets of Jerusalem as Jesus came down off the Mount of Olives where he had been with his disciples and made his way back up the little hill into the city of Jerusalem, that there was a crowd of people that lined the streets. It was the rank and file of the Jewish people. It was the pilgrims that had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Very few, if any, religious leaders were in the crowd, but the, the rank and file, the regulars, the, just the Jewish people, this is what they declared at that time. John 12 tells us, and as do those other passages, but John 12 says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. What they were declaring is, you are the Messiah. The Messiah has come. And many of, many of the people received him as such. This was the event predicted over 400 some years earlier. And for what had been talked about from the time that Adam and Eve fell, that uh, God would, the seed of the woman would come and bruise the heel of the serpent all the way through Abraham and the promises to him and to David and every, uh, every other one of the Old Testament saints had finally been realized. The Messiah had come and the nation of Israel as a whole, as a whole, they missed it, unfortunately. This is what Jesus said right after receiving that praise, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There were religious leaders that were like, make your disciples stop. You hear what they're saying about you. They're calling you to Messiah. Make them stop. That's blasphemy. But it's not blasphemy if you indeed are the Messiah. And so Jesus said this, as he came near to the city, we're told he began to weep over the city of Jerusalem saying, would that you, even you, had known 
on this day the things that make for peace. But going forth, but for now, they are hidden from your eyes. The official verdict of the nation had, to, had been to reject Jesus as Messiah. That was the official verdict of the nation. And now, of course, there were people that received it. We know many of the, the early disciples were Jews. But the official verdict of the nation was to reject who Jesus was. And ultimately, that rejection would lead a week later, or so, just under a week later, to his crucifixion. Jesus, God's anointed one, had been, as God revealed to Daniel, he had been cut off, cut off by the nation. And as a result, you can say, and I know that God is sovereign, he had a plan before the ages, even before the foundation of the earth, Christ was crucified, so none of this surprises the Lord. But as a result, you could say that God then went to plan B. He had been working, if you will, amongst the Jewish people, but they rejected the work that he was doing as a whole, as a nation, and he went to plan B. We'll call it that. Plan B, if you will, is the church age. This last 2,000 years that we have been living in, the predominantly Gentile church age. This is what the Apostle Paul calls in the book of Colossians as a mystery. It was something that didn't seem to, if you go back now that you know, with hindsight, you're like, oh, there it is, there it is, there it is. But without the hindsight of, the, of having that information now discovered, you go back and you're like, I, I never saw that. We never would have saw it. Paul calls it a mystery, the church. But there were clues. Here in the book of Daniel, we have one of those clues. This is the church age is that period of the between the 69th week of Daniel 26 and the 70th week, which we'll see he talks about in Daniel chapter 27. We call it the church age. It's the mystery. Daniel 27, it says this, And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out. That's the 70th week. So you have those 69 weeks, starting with when Nehemiah gets permission to go and rebuild Jerusalem, leading right to the crucifixion of Christ. Then we have a break, and then we are going to have, at some time into the future, the 70th week, where God will again, uniquely and primarily, deal with the Jewish people, just as he did for the first 69 weeks. Could a Gentile come to know God in faith as he was primarily working with the Jews? Absolutely. Can a Jew now come to faith even though he's primarily and uniquely working uh, in, the, in the world, in the church? Absolutely. Will God do a work in Gentiles during the tribulation period even as he's primarily and uniquely working amongst the Jewish people? Absolutely. God can work with anybody he wants, and he does. But he's going to once more uniquely and primarily work with the Jewish people during that 70th week that we call the tribulation. That one week period of time, that final week of the 70th weeks is the tribulation. Again, look at Daniel 9, 26. It says, after those 62 weeks and seven, which was talked about in the verse before, an anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, or the temple, that's what that means, 
Its end will come with a flood, and to the end there shall be a war. Desolations are decreed. So here, now, he introduces a new figure. He introduces the prince who is to come. And then in the next verse, he tells us a little bit about that prince. Look at verse 27. This is Daniel 9. It says, he will make a strong covenant with many for one week. Remember, a week is a seven-year period of time. And so this antichrist, I gave it away, I'm sorry, this prince who shall come will make a one-week peace agreement, peace treaty, primarily and uniquely with the Jewish people. So he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he will put an end to the sacrifice and the offering. And I'll just tell you what we know from other places. It's the second half of that week. Now, it goes on. And the wing of abominations will come, shall come, one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. All right, so what do we know? What do we learn here from these passages? The first thing that we learn is there is a coming time where God will transition back from the church to work uniquely and primarily among the Jewish people. And we know that that will primarily coincide with this one-week strong covenant, this one-week peace agreement, this seven-year period of time that the prince who is to come will make with those Jewish people. That's one of the first things that we learn, or two, depending on how you look at it. The next thing that we learn pertaining to this prince is that halfway through that peace agreement with the Jews, with Israel, that halfway through it, he will violate the peace agreement. He'll rip it up, he'll throw it out, pretend it never even happened. And rather than being at peace with the Jewish people, he will turn his wrath against the Jewish people. As it says in 927 of Daniel, it says, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Now, remember, for the Jewish people, where does sacrifice and offering have to occur? It occurs at the temple, which presumes that the temple will be rebuilt again. I, I wouldn't be surprised if part of the peace agreement of this seven-year period of time is a plan to work with the Muslims who currently control the Temple Mount area to give a portion of that, or all of that, to the Jews to rebuild their temple. But either way, somewhere halfway through, Satan's, or excuse me, uh, the Antichrist here is going to say, no, we're not doing that anymore. And he's not going to allow them to have their sacrifice. He's going to put an end to their sacrifices, put an end to their offerings. And then finally, look at verse 27 of Daniel 9. He has, or we have, what has been called the abomination that causes desolation. This is kind of what uh, theologians call it when they write about it. And the way it's worded in Daniel, and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate. Now, Paul describes that event very clearly. And this is found in the New Testament book of 2 Thessalonians. It's only a verse or so, so you can turn there if you want to. We'll put it up on the screen. Paul says this. He says, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, a.k.a. the prince who shall come, or the Antichrist, The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God and he proclaims himself 
to be God. What Daniel called the abomination that causes desolation, Paul gives us insight. It's when the Antichrist will set himself up in the temple to be worshipped as God. No more sacrifices to any other so-called God. No more uh, acts of worship or offering to any of those other gods. Only the Antichrist will be worshipped. And God's people in that day, primarily the Jewish people, we can't do that. Christians that come to know Christ during that period of time, we can't do that. And the Antichrist will pour out his wrath against them during this time. So this whole period of time, we call that the tribulation. Revelation chapter 6 through 19, if you want to spend some time there this week, uh, highlights in detail many of the events of that period of time. The whole event, the tribulation, the second half of the event is commonly referred to as the Great Tribulation. And again, it coincides with the Antichrist revealing his true colors. I'm not about peace with others. I'm about being worshipped. That's what I'm about. And if you won't worship me, then I will turn my wrath against you. This is what Jeremiah, in his prophecy, called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's a difficult time in the history, uh, or the future, of the Jewish people. There are many Jews that see the passage as anti-Semitic. They have a problem with it. I don't like it either. But I didn't make it up because I, I don't like the Jews and I want to get them or something like that. It's revealed to us what is going to occur. The Antichrist is indeed anti-Semitic. He's all kinds of anti. Anti-Christian as well. But Jeremiah, he said it this way, Alas, for that day is great so that none is like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble. But he, Jacob, Israel, the nation, but the nation will be saved out of it. Now, perhaps you've forgotten. We're in Psalm 2 this morning. <laughs> and I've brought up the Jews' rejection of Christ's first coming, I brought up the mystery of the church age. I brought up Daniel's 70 week. I brought up that seven-year peace agreement that the Antichrist will strike with the Jewish people. I brought up the Antichrist's violation of that peace agreement. I brought up the, the abomination that causes desolation. I brought all of that up to bring us to one more other passage of scripture before going back to the Psalms. If you would please turn to Revelation chapter 19. Now, Revelation is the last book of your Bible, so you shouldn't have too much trouble. Just go to the end and work back a little bit. Revelation chapter 19. And we're going to pick up in verse 11. In Revelation 19, 11, it begins this way. Then I saw, and if I could go back, I just said that the tribulation period is covered in Revelation chapter 6 through 19, Okay. You can read it on your own. Just trust me for a few moments before you get time to read it on your own. So this is the very end of the tribulation period. Everybody with me? All right, and this is what it says is going to happen. John received this por portion of the vision. It said, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on that white horse is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe that is dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. 
And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written which says, King of kings and Lord of lords. Verse 17, then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Again, you can go and you can read those passages here. We, we are at the very end of the Great Tribulation, and the culmination of the Tribulation will be this event in which we're reading in Psalm 2, the kings of the earth, and, and also here in Revelation, where the kings of the earth, with their armies, gathered to make war against him who was seating on the, seated on the throne and against his army. This is the event, I mentioned earlier, Bruce Willis and all that, this is the battle of Armageddon. It has nothing to do with meteors, nothing to do with oil drillers, nothing to do with space or anything like that. Revelation 16, 16 names the event that I just read to you. There it says, they assembled themselves at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. If they're going to have a battle in Armageddon or at Armageddon, a good name for it is the battle of Armageddon. And that's the event that David, God reveals to David prophetically in Psalm chapter 2. And so with that, go back to Psalm 2. I'll begin reading. You'll get there eventually. It says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Why do the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed? Why do they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us? That Revelation 19 passage and the battle that ensued, it began with the glorious return of Jesus Christ. He is the faithful and true one that is on that white horse. He's the one that is coming in righteousness to judge and make war. He's the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire and who on his head has many diadems. He's the one who has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. The idea is that no one can really grasp and comprehend and come and measure up to. He's the one whose robe is dipped in blood, which symbolizes his victory over his enemies, and whose name by which he is called is the Word of God. You remember John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is the Word of God. He is the one from whose mouth will come this sharp sword and who he will rule with a rod of iron. In short, as Revelation 19.16 said, he is the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. And in our, in our Psalm 9 
Psalm 2 passage, we're given insight. The unbelieving world doesn't like it. They don't like it all. King of king and Lord of lords. No. I'm the king of kings. I'm the Lord of lords, is how people respond. It tells us they rage and they plot. They noisily assemble. In actuality, as you kind of look through it, there's a little bit of ambiguity, but it appears that these three powers, um, alliances, are coming from three different directions to fight one another. Christ returns. They decide to join together to fight Christ. They hate each other, but they hate him more. And they want to go to war against him, God. They rage, they plot, they noisily assemble, they scheme. Verse 2 of Psalm 2, it says they take counsel together. What do you want to do? How should we do this? Their conclusion is, well, let's burst their bonds. God the Father, God the Son. Let's cast away their cords. They scheme. But of course, as it says, all their scheming is vain. We call it the Battle of Armageddon. It's not a battle at all. It's an instant defeat. You can't even call it a battle. Notice from our psalm passage, notice the Lord's response to their vain plotting. Verse 4, it says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. It says, the Lord holds them in derision. That's not necessarily, it's not like a laughing of mockery. It's a laughing of, like, I just, I can't believe these people. <laughs> like, you're going you're to defeat me? He just chuckles at it. It's incredulity. He can't believe it. God's not afraid. He's not confused. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do now? You know, get the war department together. We got to figure out a plan. They're raging. They're plotting. He's not affected in the slightest, slightest way by them coming against them. He just simply laughs at it. You, you think about the plotting and the raging these nations, and look at it from God's point of view. There's a tiny little man down there shaking his fist at God, and he's like, "Are you for real?" This little guy. No wonder he chuckles at it. David, he poses that question, why? Why do they do this? He seems genuinely mystified by this reality. And, and I'm not sure why, but maybe for the fact that we know, we've come to discover, just like David did, God is so good, God is so kind, he is so merciful, he's just, he's fair, he's righteous, he's so good to us, why would anyone want to rage against him? That's something David can't understand. So perhaps that's why he seems so mystified. And he says, why do the nations rage? I think the other reason could simply be, who do these little people think they are? That they can rage, they can plot, they can scheme, and they're going to defeat God? That's foolish. That's ridiculous. And so he poses that question. And of course, how ridiculous it is, they do it anyway. And they come up with this conclusion. Their plan is they're going to throw off the so-called bonds and cords that bind them. And either they have forgotten, or more likely they've never known that when the Son of Man sets a person free, they're free indeed. We're not bound. There's not cords that he's made us his slaves or something like that. When the Son of Man sets you free, you are free indeed. Another passage, it tells us that the Son of Man came that we might have life and have it abundantly. Not being slaves thrown into some prison somewhere. For the one that has been made right with God through the person of Jesus Christ, we're told in the book of 1 John that the commandments of God are not burdensome. They're light. His yoke is light upon us. And we love being yoked together with him. But for the person that continues in their sin, 
and the person that continues to remain alienated from God, the idea that any outside being would in any way have authority over their life, it's impossible to reconcile with their desire to rule themselves. And so they rage and they plot and they scheme. And where, again, where this passage ultimately speaks of that the Battle of Armageddon and all that's going to come with it, the reality is you can just look out, you can look on the TV, scroll through your social media, look out the window, go to work with some folks, and you can see how the nations or the peoples of the nations are raging today. Think about the cords that the world is so vociferous, angrily trying to throw off morality. There should be no system of reality. Nobody will tell anybody what, they, what is appropriate and what isn't appropriate and so on and so forth. Get rid of it. Throw off those cords. Marriage. Throw it off. Redefine it. Gender. Even gender. The cord of it. Nobody can tell me what I am or what I can be. The nation's rage. And anyone that would speak up against that, they rage against them, even. We used to kid... Some of us a little bit older in the faith. You know, they're not called the Ten Commandments. Or they're not called the Ten Suggestions. They're called the Ten Commandments. We used to kid about that a little bit. Now, I don't even think Ten Suggestions is received in the world in which we live. How dare you speak into my life something like that? That there is a right way and a wrong way. I don't want to hear it. We're living in a day where the prevailing philosophy is let us break away their band asunder and let us cast away their cords from us. We demand to be free. And so they rage against God. And how does God reply? Well, verse 5, David tells us, Then he will speak to them in his wrath, and he will terrify them in his fury. As for me, he says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So we already saw that he laughs in, in unbelief. I can't believe that little man shaking his fist at me. Now we see how he responds. And he says in verse 6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now it's God's turn to speak. They had their plan. We're going to throw off the cords that bind us. And he says, okay, you done? Now it's my turn. He says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion. Zion's another name for Jerusalem. It's a hill in Jerusalem. And so he's talking about setting my king on his throne, ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. What effect did man's opposition have upon God's program? None. None at all. And so all of these noises that we're hearing around us and people, they want to take votes in Congress on these things. We're going to decide in Congress what is right and what is wrong and we'll mail that out to God and let him know what we have decided. What are you doing? It doesn't work that way. It's what the Lord. So what effect does it have uh, on God? Absolutely none. God will continue to go forward to the accomplishment of his purpose. And as they rage, he will proceed by setting his king on his throne upon Mount Zion. And I appreciate about it. Notice how he speaks of it. He speaks of it in the past tense. And we know it hasn't occurred yet because we haven't gotten to that yet. But notice he says, I have set my king on my holy hill. It's so certain that he speaks of it as if it has already occurred. You have all these kings of the earth and rulers rebelling against the Lord, culminating in that battle of Armageddon. And the result of it all is at the end, the Lord will establish his rule and he will reign from his throne. As you go on in Revelation, you'll you'll see the next little section of passage begins to highlight that 
1,000-year glorious and righteous rule of Christ upon the earth. We call that the millennium. You can read that on your own, Revelation chapter 20. Now the passage in Psalm, though, goes on. David speaks in verses 1 through 4. The father spoke specifically in verse 6. And, and now the son speaks. This is verses 7 to 9. He says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So the son enters in to the conversation. And he, what his words are actually quoting the father. He's letting us in on some conversation that the father and the son had some time in eternity. And he speaks and he retells the words of the father. And he says, I will tell of the decree, the decree that the father made. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, the writer of Hebrews quotes that passage. It's in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. And he presents it there as evidence of the deity of Jesus Christ. He uses it there uh, to make the point that Jesus is greater even than the angels. Because to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? But he only said that of Christ. And so when it talks there, that Hebrews 1 passage, it talks about he has received the name that is more excellent than to even the angels. When it talks there about the name, it's not referring to the name Jesus. It's referring to the name or the title, Son. To which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son? He only said that to Jesus Christ. It's a name that is reserved only for God the Son. I'll read a portion of the Hebrews passage that comes a little bit later. It says, of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, the Father speaking, calling the Son God, is forever and ever the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Again, speaking of the thousand-year reign of Christ. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now, he uses the word begotten. A lot of times we think of, particularly if we read the King James when we have genealogies, it talks about, and this guy begot that guy, and this guy begot that guy, and so on and so forth. And the idea of begot, we begin to assume, well, that means that's when the second, the, the child was born, that's when he came into existence. That obviously doesn't refer to Christ. He was eternal for all existence. The word begot can also mean to be brought forth. And here it's referring to when Jesus was brought forth, not in the little manger, and late in the little manger. That wasn't the beginning of his story, so to speak, as it would in so many ways be the beginning of our story when we um, you know, were conceived and then we come forth. It refers to the resurrection, when Christ was brought forth out of the grave and there was victory, and the kingdom was now, if you will, rightfully his. That's what it's referring to. It's a reference to Jesus' uh, resurrection when he came out of Joseph's tomb. And so, again, quoting the Father, the Son, he says in verse 8, he goes on, Ask of me, this is what the Father said, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. When does that happen? Right after the Battle of Armageddon, as he sets up his throne in the millennium. And this is what you have probably prayed for many, 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 many times as a Christian. And maybe you don't remember. But anytime you said, 
I can't even remember it. Uh, how's the Our Father begin? Our Father, there you go. <laughs> Anytime you got to the portion of that prayer that said, thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, you are ultimately praying for the millennium to be established. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. The Father will make the nations the heritage of the Son and the ends of the earth his possession, as the passage says. Now regarding the millennium, there are a million passages. No, that's not true. There's a lot of passages. John 5 talks about it, or Revelation 11, Matthew 25 in great detail. Revelation 20, Joel 3, Micah 4, Zechariah 6, 8, and 14. 1 Corinthians 15. You get the point? It's all throughout the scriptures. It talks about the millennium. Sometimes in small little bits, a verse or a few verses, sometimes whole chapters or close to whole chapters are touching on that topic. So you can go back and you can read them. And if you need those passages, let me know and I'll, I'll send them to you. But going on still in the, proverb, in the psalm, verse 10. Now, here in verse 10, this is where we have a plea from somebody else. It's not, the, it's not the Father, it's not the Son. Some think it's David, some think it's the Holy Spirit. But there is this plea of this third or fourth voice, and it says in verse 10, Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. You can think of this as God just said, I'm going to judge the kings and the rulers of the earth. That's what he just said in the passage that we've been looking at, in all those passages that we look at it. And now you have this plea. And essentially, whoever's speaking, David, the Holy Spirit, is saying, but that doesn't have to be your story. You don't have to be judged. You don't have to experience the consequences of your sin. You don't have to move forward in rebellion as those kings and those rulers on that day are going to do. And so he says, now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled, because our blessed are all who take refuge in him. Yes, worldwide rebellion will come. Yes, it will be defeated with a word, not even with some major battle. Just it'll be simply defeated. What it does not mean, however, is that everyone need rebel and shake their fist at God, because graciously... God extends the offer for all to take refuge in him. God doesn't want to bind or fetter. He wants to bless, and he wants to set free, and he reaches out his hands to any that will take it. And the psalmist or the Holy Spirit, whomever, counsels the kings of the earth that they give up their foolish defiance of the Lord, that they give themselves to serve God with fear and trembling. He uses the phrase, kiss the sun while there's still an opportunity. This is synonymous with what we read in the New Testament where it says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You remember when, I think it's Paul, he's preaching there and the people are cut and they're like, well, what should we do? We're, we're ripe for judgment. And the response is simply, you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Here in the Psalm, kiss the sun while you may that he might bring the sweetness of forgiveness. The Spirit of God today is crying out to people that they come to him. And blessed, the Bible says here, are all who take refuge in him. And so I go back to the theme I began with. One of the themes of the book of the Psalms is that God is victor. 
that right, the righteous and righteousness will win out in the end, though the circumstances may not always seem to do so, seem so, God will be victorious. Those who defy God are broken, defeated. But those who take their refuge in him, he says, are blessed. And so we have a choice before us, even now, you and I, we have a choice before us. We can rebel against God or we can embrace the Lord. You're sovereign, you're Lord, you're in control of my life. You're the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And though I desperately want to be, I relinquish my life to you. God says there's great blessing in that. And again, the choice is yours. Let's pray. And so, Father, we, we do, as your children, we rest in that reality. And Lord, we look around us at times and it seems like the enemy is winning, that the raging is having its effect. It seems like the, the cords and the bands are being broken and people are doing whatever they want and we're going to be sucked into the consequences of it. But the reality, we remind ourselves this morning, Lord, that you are still on your throne and that righteousness will indeed win out in the end. And Lord, as we learned last week, you pour out blessing, peace, rest, comfort, satisfaction of life. You pour it out on those that walk according to your ways. And so, Lord, as people that have been made right with God through his son, Jesus Christ, your son, Jesus Christ, Lord, we want to go forward. We want to walk in your ways. We draw near to you, Lord. Speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.